As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And when I say that, this time for once, he's sitting right next to me. Stu, we've had, had done a lot to make this podcast work this morning. We tried from my hotel room, but there was a woman with a really, really awkward piercing laugh. I think you would say like laugh, laughs. The expression laughs like a hyena. Yeah, she was outside in the next outside the, in the courtyard, so we couldn't do that. Then we went to the breakfast nook. That didn't work. So here we are. Here we are. Lovely room. To my be. lovely room here at the Marriott Courtyard. We are here in Phoenix. If we didn't make that clear yet, I don't think we had. It's kind of an, like not a very well-known thing to the public, but basically most of the college football world convenes on Phoenix, uh, specifically the Biltmore Resort, the first week of May, for various meetings, but also an excuse to play golf and get drunk, let's be honest. Um, we've seen, we've been here for a day and we've seen coaches and ADs from the Pac-12, because their meetings had already started, the American, the Big 12 hasn't really gotten here yet. The Big 10 has started to arrive. Uh, the MAC. And then some other coaches, like Brett Bielema, we ran into. Because the, there's people from the AFCA of, who are here. Yeah. So And then bowl executives and TV executives. It's basically everybody with the exception of some ACC and SEC folks. Most of the ACC and SEC won't be here. Yeah, like David Cutcliffe is here. As Bielema said, the SEC has it, does, want, does that thing in Destin. Keep you know to themselves, which is just a zoo. I've actually never been, but it's big enough that they have to hold press conferences and stuff. There's there's what maybe six of us in the media here, seven, six or seven. Yeah, yeah. there would have been more, but as we said last week, yeah, there the were ESPN there. Layouts. Usually, the ESPN sends like four or five people themselves, but this time there was only one. So, uh, Stu, so we've been here both about twenty four hours. Any developments that are interesting? Well, at least to this point, maybe this will change, but it's, it's just usually there's some hot button issue that's going on. In fact, a year ago at this time, the Big 12 was knee deep in expansion talk, and that was the big story here. You know, in the past, it may have been the playoff was starting or the Ed O'Bannon case or whatnot. I sat in a group with Larry Scott for a half hour. I was struggling to come up with stuff to ask. Like, there is no hot button issue in college sports right now. Yeah, you couldn't have asked him about the, what everybody else asked him in Pac-12. The, the, direct the weekly direct TV question? Yeah. No, we did talk a little bit about the changing, the business changing. And it's interesting, like, one of the things they get criticized most for with the Pac-12 network was their decision to go at it alone without an ESPN or Fox. And that maybe that's why they've struggled to get distribution. But Larry is uh, claiming that it now is a victory, uh, given the, the given the economics, given the changing cable model. Uh, he's acting like this was just one big long play to this point where you might want to control your content. We'll see. Um, at, I mean, at the end of the day, they're always going to be behind the other network conference networks because they're not on DirecTV. And in terms of the larger revenue gap, you know, I mean, the SEC and the Big Ten with their deals are going to just keep getting further and further away from the other conferences. 
And he said, look, you know, there's a, and I kind of agree with him on this. There's a point of diminishing return. Like they have enough money to be nationally competitive, right? right. Washington was in the playoff last year. Oregon was in the final four. Are they throwing, you know, are they going to ever pay one of their head coaches $11 million like Saban? No. Um, they're always going to be kind of middle of the pack in that. But they're, I think they're just kind of okay with that. They, as, lo- as long as they don't feel like they're at a disadvantage, then I think they're okay with being um, competitive but not – they're not going to be the ones, other than Oregon, obviously, they're not going to be the ones with the $10,000 lockers. Okay. I mean – you know, I feel like we're we're trying to drill down to find stuff to talk about. <laughs> well, let's talk about that saving contract for a second. That sure made headlines. It did. I look, and not only did his contract, Tosh Lupoy making almost a million dollars as an outside linebacker coach, certainly turned some heads. Now he did have opportunities to be a power five defensive coordinator, but I think, and I've always said this, and this kind of encapsulates it: Alabama's committed to playing football at the highest level in in terms of resources in terms of their commitment to college football. And that can be taken a lot of different ways, but I think in terms of their investment in it. And so you're saying Nick Saban will make $11 million this year. And to be clear, that is a one-time thing because he got a $4 million signing signing bonus. And also, uh, from my understanding, he is not the highest-paid coach in football. He's the highest-paid coach in college football. But from from what I've been told, there are two coaches who make more than that. Who? Let's see if you can guess them. Belichick? That would be one. And Carroll. Stupid. Yeah, there you go. Well, when you think about it, there aren't that many NFL coaches that are entrenched enough at their franchise to get those kind of contracts. Yeah, and I'm not sure, you know, it's it's different with, with those as opposed to maybe some other, uh, you know, like a lot of times you'll see USA Today has looked through contracts. When it comes to private institutions, it's different as to, you know, what's out there, what's not out there. I would also just argue that Saban is more important to Alabama than probably any NFL coaches to their team other than Belichick. I mean, Belichick's had this thing going for so long now. It's hard to, you know, in all the Super Bowls, it's hard to argue against that. He put his face on the helmet at this point. Yeah, but, okay, so whenever news like this comes out, you get your predictable... Oh, yeah, the players aren't getting paid. Players aren't getting paid, and that's a whole conversation. You could devote a whole podcast to that. So, that's fair. But the it's what does separate, this say about issue. academics and misplaced priorities? Um, the New York Times did a really – I tweeted it out. The New York Times did a really good story in 2015 about just how much Saban and that program have impacted the university. It's not just that they're winning championships. Their enrollment has skyrocketed. They're getting applications from better students. They're getting people from around the country, whereas it used to be, a, you know, if you lived in the state of Alabama – and maybe some of the states around it, that's who went to Alabama. People from New York want to go to Alabama. They're a cool school. And it's the visibility that's come with this football run. So if you're the University of Alabama, it's a no-brainer. Like, of course you're going to keep him uh, compensated at the highest level. You want this to keep going for as long as possible. Our guy Greg Byrne, how about, I mean, he's only been on the job for, what, a month or two? Yeah, he got it right. He got it done. Um, you know, is it, I mean, it is crazy, the disconnect between those numbers, the fact that, that that those numbers are getting to where they are, to $11 million, and nothing changes on the player front, but... Well, so let me let me ask this part. Uh, are we heading to a bubble with that because, you know, we brought this up last week because it hit home that it was jobs in our industry, and it was a lot of people were sports reporters, but it was also... ESPN, which paid a fortune mm-hmm. for the SEC and certainly for the playoff, um, and is on the hook for bowls. And they're, they're, you know, when that stuff starts to have to get reeled in, and maybe it won't get reeled in because maybe Amazon and. So and that's what I was going to say. So, well, first of all, Nick Saban's $11 million is not coming. I don't know what the percentage breakdown is. It's not coming from the TV revenue as much as it is from their donors. Like, when they need to give Nick Saban a raise, they, they don't have trouble finding donors to pay for that. They are going to have trouble, though, finding donors to pay for a new tennis facility. That's got to come from the TV revenue. But, yeah, I mean, we have asked Larry Scott about this and his thoughts about where it's going, and he's bullish. He's like, I'm, I'm bullish on live sports events still. 
it may be in the future when the next cycle of these deals comes up, it's not ESPN or Fox that's paying the top dollars for it, but it might be Amazon. It might be Twitter. Amazon just, I mean, who would have thought, right? If I told you five years ago that Amazon would be getting an exclusive deal to stream NFL Thursday night games, you know, Amazon, they sell books. Um, it's changing, you know? I mean, there's no other way to put it. There's new... There's new companies coming. I mean, there's still the demand, but it may be new companies that are right. footing the bill. All right, guys, we've relocated to the lobby of the beautiful Arizona Biltmore. We promised you a surprise guest on this week's podcast. Here he is. We're with Minnesota <laughs> coach PJ Fleck. What a surprise. It, it, believe me, <laughs> it was a surprise it's a surprise even to you. <laughs> um, well, how have the first few months been? I mean, usually when a new coach gets to a new school, it's pretty hectic. It is. It's kind of like uh, drinking out of a fire hose. It really is. And in a good way, you know, because there's so much to do, so much to accomplish uh, that you really don't have time just to kind of uh, do anything for yourself. It, it's all about doing other things for other people and, and um, you know, really getting our culture instilled at the University of Minnesota. I think that's the biggest part. Really proud of our players, really proud of our staff for how they've handled the last four or five months. Um, everything we do is for the first time, you know, because we are a new, a new culture. So, uh, but it's been, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun and very challenging as well. What's been the biggest thing you've taken from, obviously you got a lot of attention for your mantra, row the boat. What's been the biggest thing you guys have taken from now that you're not a first time head coach, you've done it, you've seen it work Yeah. that you say, okay, this is going to be a challenge implementing it in a different place though. Yeah. It, it, it kind of reminds me of Western Michigan, the, the university of Minnesota, because, you know, we only won two championships in 108 years at Western Michigan. And uh, when you start to think about championships at, at Minnesota, we haven't won a big 10 championship in over 55 years, um, national championship in over 60 years. Um, but the biggest thing I've learned is never sacrifice what you really want down the road for what you want right now. I think that's really a priceless bit of information, especially when you take over a culture or a program that hasn't had a ton of championship-type success. They've had some good seasons here and there, but I'm talking about championship seasons. And, um, and that's why I took the job. You know, the job fit me perfectly um, because that's kind of what I do. That's who I've been around my entire life, from the Greg Shianos to the Joe Novaks to the Jerry Kills. Um, you know, those are the people who have really take, taken programs and turned them around, and that's kind of what I know. So, But don't really sacrifice what you really want down the road for what you want right now. It's the best, best, best things I've learned, best thing I've learned in my coaching, because you want something to happen right now, but sometimes it can't happen right now, and you've got to take the necessary steps for it to happen three, four, or five years down the road, uh, but you've got to be able to, you know, take it on the chin right now, so. When you first got there, the program had gone through a really tumultuous period there with the almost boycotting the bowl game. Guys saw their teammates um, suspended or expelled. Uh, it just seemed at the time like it was a really polarizing time for the, for the guys in the locker room. When you got there, how big a challenge was that to kind of get them to move past that and, and kind of whatever ill feelings they come off to? Yeah, I think I'd be lying that. to you if I said it wasn't a challenge. It was definitely a challenge. Um, you know, anytime that you have a team that – gets divided um, and whether it's administration versus players, players versus administration, players against players, players against coaches, whatever it is, the minute you walk into a team and it's divided, there's a lot of challenges that come with that. Uh, but every single day what we've worked on is just connecting each other, administration, coaches, players, every single day connecting our players and coaches uh, better uh, than we were the day before. And that's all we're worried about and focusing on right now is the process of becoming a team because I don't even think we're a team. I, I think we're a group a group of guys kind of put together that says, okay, we have to play football. Uh, but for us to become a team, that's when it has to be, look, it's not about me. It's about me doing it for you, not only just a player uh, or a team, but now the administration, coaches, community, university, state, so on and so forth. So, But I think our players are understanding that. They're understanding the culture. They're understanding, understanding it better every single day. When you, uh, I know you mentioned Greg Shiano before. He was chopping wood. Well, where did you get – What's the origin of row the boat, and why does that? Why did that kind of fit? Yeah, row the boat's a never give up attitude. It's very similar to chopping wood, uh, keep chopping. Uh, that was kind of the slogan that was kind of at Western Michigan, or, or I'm sorry, at Rutgers when when I was there. Um, I lost my second son when I was at Rutgers to a heart condition, and the minute that happened, um, I knew that I'd have to have something for. Want not only for my program, I'd eventually take over, but I wanted something that would be able to live his life for him, and that's kind of where row the boat came from. Um, and so once that was kind of discovered, then you kind of evol evolves from there. And then, um, you know, that's why I have so much energy. Everybody was asking, how much you have, why do you have so much energy? You know, it's, is that really truly real? It is real. I mean, I live my life and I live his life for him. 
So, you know, I have to have the, the type of energy that I have. But row the boat's very simple. The oars are the energy you bring to your life. The boat is the sacrifice. What are you willing to give up for something that you never had? And the compass is the direction of your life. So it fits perfectly for these 17 to 22-year-old young men that are going through some really, really interesting times. Did it fit perfectly for you right. as a man and as a husband to get through it's such a devastating and tragic thing in oh, terms absolutely. of like one day at a time. And absolutely, because that's what it's about. You know, you, you control and you dictate whether your oar is in the water or you take it out of the water. Because the oar is the only thing that can move the boat, right? So, uh, and, and when you row, that, that's going through every single circumstance that you have on a daily basis. And if you allow life to dictate where you want to go, let the seas dictate where you want to go, you're going to end up where life takes you instead of taking life by the horns, right? And say, I'm going to go here. You know, we're going to find a way to get Minnesota to become a big 10 champion. Right? I know it's a, it seems uh, kind of a lofty goal right now. And a lot of people doubting us, but that's part of it, you know? So um, just continue to keep your oar in the water, no matter what happens to you. I think that's really, um, you know, a really powerful statement uh, and people can relate to it because they could, everybody knows what row the boat looks like. So it doesn't matter whether you're an athlete or whether you're, um, you know, a, a priest or whether you're, you know, a teacher, everybody can understand what Roll the Boat's all about. So you're also known for other unique sayings and, and we're actually a little disappointed you didn't come over and say you were doing elite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did it all, did, did that just kind of like that kind of terminology, did that also evolve out of dealing with the tragedy or, you know, absolutely or is it more, is some of that stuff more about promoting a football program? Well, I don't think it's about promoting any football program. One thing about me is uh, what you see is what you get, right? And the lifestyle that you see in our program is a lifestyle we live at home, right? So one thing about the jobs we've taken as the athletic directors that I've worked for, Kathy Beauregard at Western Michigan and now Mark Coyle at Minnesota, have allowed me to be me, right? And these are things I've learned over the course of my entire life, not only life, entire coaching career. And if I could sit there and teach my son, and my players, all these, my, my kids, my son, my daughters, uh, my players, all of these life lessons, then why wouldn't I put those into, my, in, into that culture every single day? Because I think that's really important that your culture's got to really be a direct reflection of how you live your life. Or it's going to be something that's not you eventually. Mm -hmm. I think our culture is us. Culture is me. And I don't have any problem doing it because it's really just living your life. But all those words and all those things, they have a ton of meaning. I mean, we are giving substance to these 17 to 22 year old young men behind a lot of words they hear in society. You know, if I ask all of you what integrity means, you're going to have a hundred, you're going to have, you're going to have two different, we'll all have three different, you know, definitions of it, but the football team have 105 different definitions. I want everybody to have the same definition of it and then branch out from there. Did you have a backup plan if you did, you guys didn't get the, the rights to that back in Minnesota? <laughs> yeah, we had a backup plan. We were going to change it somehow, some way. It didn't have to do with a boat, but I wasn't worried about that. I mean, if, if, if somebody wanted to hold it hostage that bad and really wanted it that bad just to make things difficult in my life, then it wasn't it wasn't worth it. Um, you was know, it going to be push the boat? It was going to be something. Oh, yeah, it was going to be mow the grass or something. We <laughs> were going to do something, yeah. I uh, just want to ask you, you had a, one of your former players, Corey Davis, goes as a top five pick, right, in the draft. Two-star guy. I think I, I saw somewhere he was like the 169th ranked receiver when he was coming out of high school. But what did you guys see in him that other people missed? Well, we only had two weeks to recruit him, which was very unique. We got the job in January and then had the dead period, and then you had the two weeks to actually kind of go on the road. What I saw in him was just the willingness and the determination to become special. You know, he didn't have the, big, the, 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 the best grades, and he wasn't recruited by many people. So when you go ahead and take a risk on a young man, you've got to be able to believe that he's going to be able to get it done on the field and off the field. Um, and his work ethic, you saw what he was able to do with his GPA. You were able to watch how he was able to work. Uh, and, you know, at that point, you only have two weeks. He kind of looks you in the eye and said, listen, are you going to make it? You know, can I believe and trust in you you're going to make it? He goes, coach, there's not one thing more important to me than making it, and I will make it. I promise you I will make it academically, and he did. And from that point forward, he was the hardest worker on our football team. And I thought what made us really special at Western Michigan was our best players were our hardest workers. And when you have that, you have something really special. And Corey Davis was the example of that. Where would he have ended up if you guys don't jump in the picture? Yeah, I don't even know. I, I asked him that when we were sitting in the draft together. I even asked his, um, you know, his guardian that. I said, where would he have ended up? He goes, 
I don't know. We, we didn't even want to talk about it yet. Mm. So. Did he have any other offers, FBS offers? Uh, he didn't, no. Wow. And he's a good-sized guy. Oh, he was 6'3", 185, 190 pounds. So what, did, what were people missing? Well, I, they never knew how fast he was. He didn't go to a lot of camps, so nobody knew how fast he was. He was hurt their year prior, so nobody really knew much about him at that point. So, um, you know, and they didn't have the best grades. So, I mean, you have to be willing to take a chance on some kids if you believe in them. I think that's the biggest thing is that you can't take a chance on all the kids that you have in your recruiting class because if half of them don't make it, then you got half a recruiting class, right? But the ones that you do take a chance on, you have to know that their insides are stronger than what's on their outside, and that's what Corey Davis was all about. So by the time we got to last season, to the, to the undefeated season, people knew Western Michigan for that very exciting offense, guys like Corey Davis, Zach Carroll. Um, is that the goal, to get Minnesota to, to, to play a similar style? Well, yeah, I mean, we want to score points, and we want to keep points off the board on the defensive side, right, and have special teams create explosive plays and create field position for us. Um, I think the biggest thing is, you know, we have to develop at the rate of how it's going to allow us to develop. You know, we have a very cert- we have a certain way of doing things. You know, for 2018 in recruiting, we have 13 commitments already. I think we're a top 10 class already at the University of Minnesota, which I don't remember how when the last time that was. Um, but we're working on it every day to be able to, to get our future to where we said it's going to go. Um, I think that's really important for us to be able to continue to show our state, show our university that, you know, we don't want to take a backseat to anybody, you know, and if it's offense or defense that wins championships, either one, uh, we're going to have to be really good at both in the Big Ten. Uh, We want to score points. We want to be explosive. uh, But we to be able to do that, you need explosive playmakers. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I go back to year one at Western Michigan. We were one and 11. We weren't very explosive. Mm -hmm. Same coordinator on offense and defense. Uh, that was 13-0, right? So same guys. It's just the maturity of our football team was way better. We we recruited incredible playmakers, uh, and we allowed them to grow and develop within the system, and I think that's really important. So many people want to change systems and change coordinators all the time. I believe in continuity, you know, and, and 1-11, you could have easily made some changes and gone different directions, but that wasn't, wasn't what it was about. Uh, as a leader, you got to see what are the issues, and the issues were we didn't have enough playmakers, so we had to continue to recruit better playmakers. What kind of resistance, if at all, had you gotten? You've been pretty pretty uh, high profile, especially for a Mac coach, and high energy, and people see you run on the sidelines and the tie, and there's a certain style to it. Have you gotten much pushback, or do you? Like, well, I think I think the media creates your profile, you know, because I think however the way the media wants to spin you is how you're perceived by other people. Uh, I'm just me, you know. Uh, I can't control the publicity we get. I'm I, I do everything I can to, to, to make sure that University of Minnesota is looked at um, as a, a big-time institution, uh, not only just through the academics, but also on the football field. Right? And that's my job. My job is to promote the University of Minnesota, uh, as well as my job was to promote the you know, Western Michigan University. Um, but again, I, I, I love just being myself. You know, there's so many people in this profession that can't be themselves. And if people take a liking to it, great. If people don't like it, that's great. I can at least put my head down on the pillow and they know that I'm making a difference in people's lives. I'm doing things the right way. And uh, I'm me. You, so you went through your first spring with these guys. What, you know, you're, you're, I'm sure your first great chance to kind of evaluate the, the roster that you inherited. What did you come out feeling like, oh, we feel pretty good about going to the season? What are your concerns? Well, we have a, I will say this. I think we have a lot of concerns. I think we have a lot of depth concerns. You know, we only had four to five offensive linemen at times um, uh, during the spring. You know, there was a certain amount of practices. We only had four linemen, so we couldn't do any team. We had to do all seven-on-seven. Seven. Uh, we did a lot of seven-on-seven seven scrimmages, which was really unique, <laughs> um, which hadn't been done before, I don't think, So, um, which I actually liked, took a lot of things from, which we'll use again. Uh, we don't have a freshman, sophomore, and then we only have one junior defensive tackle on the roster. Um, our secondary is a little bit depleted uh, with the suspensions and things we had from six, seven months ago. Um, we don't have a lot of depth on the offensive side. We don't have a lot of experience. But, again, all the things we don't have, we're going to create to what we do have, right? And I think that's one of the biggest things. So we have a depth concern and an issue and an experience issue, um, but over time we should be able to fix that. Is there a guy who could be a Corey Davis or somebody like this? You know, we have some guys that have some special qualities. I I don't like comparisons a lot because I think comparisons steal uh, people's joy. You know, I never like to be compared to someone else that coached at Minnesota that had a lot of energy either. I I don't like to be compared to those people. 
And, but I think that we do have some playmakers that need to be developed. I wish they were all freshmen. Some of them are a little bit upper uh, upperclassmen that you wish you had for four years that you might only have for one or two. Um, but I think that's going to be a big uh, emphasis for us as we go through the recruiting cycle here is to look for the traits that Corey had. I don't know if you can find the next Corey Davis, right, but you're going to find the traits of that to fit our culture because it's not just Corey Davis. It's Taylor Moten and Zach Terrell, our quarterback at Western Michigan. You know, it's Shooks Okorafor, who will probably be a first, second rounder next year. Um, it's the Jarvion Franklin, it's Jamari Bogans. So it, it's not necessarily them. It's, it's our culture, finding uh, the, the right, we call them the right how people, right? The right, the right how-fers is what we call them now in Minnesota, the, the people that fit our culture with the how. We appreciate the time. Yeah, I appreciate your you, time, too. Wish you yeah. luck this year. It means um, a lot. It's going to be fun to watch the Gophers this season. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll be very exciting, I promise you that. Are we okay. expecting to see you uh, surf on the uh, on your in a locker room at some point. We'll see. You know, Western Michigan, they kind of adopted that. So we'll see if we carry that over to Minnesota. we got to win some games first before that actually happens. So. Same sideline style? Fashion style? Yeah, same style. Yep. Yeah, quarter zip, uh, tie. And, again, I do that. Why do I do that? Because, you know, Jim Tressel is one of my biggest mentors. He wore a tie on the sideline. Mike oh, Nolan, uh, you know, I mean, he gave me a shot to play in the National Football League. And, you know, his dad wore a suit and tie on the sideline, Dick Nolan. So, for me, I, I am a, I am I would be nothing without the coaches that, that – that, you know, taught me everything I know. I'd be nothing. I mean, I'd, I'd still be teaching sixth grade social studies. I wouldn't be a head coach in the Big Ten. So uh, it's my job to be able to promote them any way I can and be able to show when people look at me, they can see my past. You miss his teaching social studies at all? Any part of that? I, 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 uh, I, I enjoy the simplicity of it. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I miss the simplicity um, of that and the pureness of the kids in sixth grade. You know, they truly need you. But there's so much correlation between teaching sixth grade and being a Big Ten head football coach or being a head football coach at major Division One institution. There's a lot of connection there. Uh, teaching's teaching, educating, educating. It's just at a different level. All right. Well, we appreciate you stopping I appreciate by. it, guys. Yeah, thanks yeah, for your time. Absolutely. Yeah, roll the boat. Thanks. What do you say we get to the mailbag? Let's do it. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And, Bruce, this is a rare occasion where you saw the emails at the same time as I did. I did. Uh, you want me to start or you want to start? Um, I'm going to start with – okay, so a lot of your emails were about the episode we did about the ESPN layoffs. And I picked one. Derek, Stu and Bruce, with all the ESPN layoffs, why weren't more game analysts let go? Not that I'm rooting for anyone to lose their jobs, but it seems like analysts provide less insight over time than some writers and are easily replaceable. Ouch. Define game analysts. So when you normally have a game that you watch on Saturdays, there is the play-by-play person, the analyst, and then usually a sideline person. No matter what, I think the safest jobs in of all right now in our industry are if you're a play-by-play person or if you're a game analyst because there's always going to be games right. and they're going to televise the games. Now they may not need five people to sit on set at halftime or in a pregame or in a postgame show. They can maybe have three. They could maybe have two. They could have a host and an analyst. But when you're doing a game on a broadcast, it's you can't just have a play-by-play guy. Much as our friend Tim Brando would love to be the only voice calling <laughs> it, um, you need that analyst because it would just be a really tough listen to have one guy. This isn't baseball where Ben Scully is able to pull mm-hmm. it off. So, you know, whether you whether you like some of these people or not who, who are doing the calls, there's, there's so many games now, more than certainly when I grew up or when you grew up, you know, where there was maybe six games a week on TV. Um, just, I think, one of our Fox weekends, I want to say we have double-digit games in college. And so... You need people to do those games. Those are those are jobs that are always going to be there. I think. Yeah, I mean, if if the point Derek is making that he he doesn't like some of the game analysts, yeah, I mean, sometimes game analysts get let go and replaced by others. But no, they're not going to start showing games without color guys. And I would also say that you know, let's take Gary Danielson for example. He seems to be a very polarizing. That's guy. That's exactly the word I was. Thinking. Yeah, like a lot of people think he's a shill for the SEC. A lot of people think he is. Um, I don't know, like, what are some of the things he's considered to be maybe too blunt? I don't know. I actually, I like Gary Danielson's analysis. I feel like if there was an interception thrown when they come back to the highlight, I feel like he has a pretty good take so on So that's what I was just going to say. You may not like his personality, but I don't know that there's many that are better at... Breaking down why something happened. In real time. I mean, a play happens, 
Vern says like, you know, 15 seconds of stuff and boom, up comes the replay and he can tell you exactly, oh, you know, the DB got caught looking at this guy and the quarterback. Or, the, or, this, or this receiver didn't run a crisp route. He rounded it off his route and that's why the DB was able to jump. I don't know how he does it, frankly, in real time. Like, I couldn't spot all that I that a, quickly. I don't know. We should maybe have him on. That. I had a dinner with Chris Spielman a couple weeks ago when I was in Columbus and I started asking him about because he was the guy who's like, okay, they're gonna they're gonna pass because I can see by the by the uh, right tackle's feet before the snap what's gonna happen. Sure, if they're doing this or whatever, and we're talking about a guy who's a great NFL player and a, obviously an all time great college football player, and his um, the way he diagnoses stuff before it happens or as it happens is pretty remarkable as, as somebody just as a college football fan. And so we sat there and he was diagramming plays on literally on napkins about this is when this happens. This is why this happens. And it's fascinating to listen to somebody talk about when you see something, how it works. And again, that's what makes some of these guys that made them really good players. And I think some guys are really good at doing it and some guys aren't. And some guys can't articulate it, you know, in the moment. Like you said, this is happening so fast and there's so many different things but it's really on the play-by-play guy to, to follow the ball, where it's on the color guy to kind of kind of deduce why everything happened. Okay, our next question is from Sean in Turks and Caicos. Wow, Sean wins on the who, who gets yeah, he's having <laughs> who gets to live the best life. Um, Last week, you answered a question about who would be the next Western Michigan, and you both agreed that USF and Charlie Strong would take on that role due to the roster inherits. Given Jim Harbaugh inherited a team that had the most players drafted last weekend, what does it say that he has so far been unable to get all that talent beyond third place in their division? Ouch. It is, is it a matter of waiting for him to get a cycle of his guys through, or should a coach who comes in with such high praise be able to have more success with that talent? I I'm, I got confused as you were reading that because I don't necessarily see the connection between USF becoming the yeah, next Western like Michigan. Questions. Yeah, I guess the only he's saying that the the idea of inheriting the roster. Well, okay, Charlie Strong. I mean, Charlie Strong inheriting a roster that went eleven and two last year. If you recall, when Harbaugh got there, Michigan was coming off a losing season. Now, I will say, I did not hear Brady Hoke's name mentioned at all on these telecasts, and they're talking about Michigan having 11 players drafted, he recruited all of those guys. He may not have been a great coach at Michigan, but he recruited the talent that led right. to 11 draft picks. Now the question is, how many of those 11 guys got drafted more because of the way Harbaugh and his staff developed them? Because clearly they weren't playing at an they NFL were also, level. But when, when he got his last year, it was a sophomore-loaded team. It was Hoax a real, last year. Yeah, so I think... I imagine that team would have got better. Now, I think a couple of things happened. They got really better running the football. And I, I would give a lot of credit to to uh, Harbaugh and his staff. Also, they made a smart move. They got uh, a grad transfer who was a pretty good quarterback at Iowa. And then Jake Rudock and turned out to be a very productive guy. He made it on an NFL roster. And I think that staff did a really good job taking it forward. Now, I would... I don't want to say take issue with it, but like the fact that they were as good as they were and ended up blowing out Florida in the bowl game two years ago, you know, I thought that was a pretty successful season. Um, last year, I think it all comes back to because they, they drilled Penn State, but obviously they couldn't beat Ohio State. Well, last year, and just Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. But, but getting to my point is, yeah, there was a ton of players drafted from Michigan. There's been a ton of players drafted from Ohio State the last, you know, the last couple of years, too. So I am, I actually, you know, as much as people think I love to mock Michigan and I did make a third place Big East, Big Ten East joke, at the end of the day, like it came down to inches on that JT Barrett play. Mm -hmm. If they spot it, you know, a few inches differently, Michigan's going on to the, to the, at least the Big Ten championship game and possibly the playoff. It's that, it's hard for me to like get caught up on Harbaugh's legacy and the fact that he wasn't a championship yet. When is that? It's a matter of inches, possibly. Right. Now, what's a reasonable expectation going forward? I mean, I think they take a step back this year because you can't lose 18 seniors and 11 starters and expect to just keep on humming. But So you'd say, if I told you the over-under was for the whole season was 10 wins, you're taking the under. I would take the under. 
But, but you're he's, the same guy who didn't think they would do better than six and six his first year, right? You did not think they you're would going do way back on me now. That's probably I don't remember. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think I said that. Well, he could surprise some people this year. But here's the thing: so Ohio State lost a whole bunch of guys last year and, and didn't miss a beat. But Urban's been there since 2012 and been recruiting at a high level. I don't think Michigan's necessarily set up yet to just reload like that, but they could be by the time you get to 2018, and it's all Harbaugh's recruits. At that point, I think it's fair. If two years from now we're still talking about, well, they almost beat Ohio State, uh, you know, they, they almost won the division, you know, then it's like, well, why is this guy such a big deal? I would agree with that. Uh, moving on. All right. Uh, Ryan. I was going to ask this question. But okay, go ahead. This question is from, I believe, uh, Johnny, and I believe the last name is she. Stuart and Bruce, always look forward to your podcast. And yes, I am registered with iTunes for your podcast. Thank you, Johnny. Uh, your recent discussion about layoffs at ESPN had me thinking about news organizations and their reluctance to publish stories with bad news about themselves. If you had similar scale layoffs at Fox Sports, would you be reluctant to write a story? Or if one of your fellow journalists were made part of a news story, insert some controversy here. Would you write about it or leave it alone because it was too close to home? Uh, well, you know what? We did have similar scale layoffs about a year ago, right? Um, we had layoffs almost every year toward the end of my yeah, time. I, I mean, ESPN is so big for them to lay off a hundred people, even if they're like on air. I think you know we lay off thirty five or forty. That's similar scale. ESPN is such a giant in, especially in college football world that like they get covered like I said this to when I was at SI sometimes they would say like why aren't you and ESPN.com like why do you write about ESPN so much like you cannot cover college football nationally and not write about ESPN they are a huge part of the sport and they are a huge part of the sport in terms of you know when you when you have rights deals you're driving the influence I know it had come up with the ACC and it's come up from time to time about you know too much influence and all that uh you know, I would also make the case, yes, we were talking last week in our podcast in a lot of detail about ESPN's layoffs, and it did hit close to home because a lot of these people, um, and this is not a slight on some of the people who, who got laid off at Fox last year, but I think we were closer to some of these people at ESPN than we probably were with some of, some of, the, some of the people who got laid off at Fox just because, you know, we don't have those long relationships with them. I'd also make the point that I think what was also kind of big picture wise that you know is going on is when people look and see the layoffs i think it's 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 the 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 back end of that which is you don't know if if these people after they get laid off what their next step is going to be the industry as it is i mean that's not just an espn story that is a that is a sports story in general um and so that's why it was now to further on johnny's question um if one of your fellow journalists were made part of a news, sports news story, would you write about it? Well, for, I don't think we necessarily addressed the first part yet. Would we talk about if, – if, if something happened like that at Fox, I would think – and if we were fortunate enough to not be part of it, yeah. I would think we would definitely I – mean, especially our coworkers who we were – we would definitely talk about it on here. I don't know that we would get into the business model because that's not really our place to question our own employer's business model. But uh, I'm sure we would salute the people uh, for sure. Okay, what was the other part? The other question is, if one of your fellow journalists were, were part of a sports news story, would you write about it? Hey, I have an example of that. In 2011, a college football writer who I was particularly close to became part of the news, was written about in the New York Times, and so on and so on. Um, I didn't write about your situation, but I certainly tweeted about right. it. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it would depend on the situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Like, I, I would just make the case that whether we write about it or we talk about it for 20 minutes or 25 minutes on our podcast, I feel like it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. So, um, and I, I would also feel like if we're tweeting on it and commenting, I, I'm one of these people, and I think you're the same, where you don't make a distinction. If you're tweeting about it or if you're talking about it on the podcast or you're talking about it on the radio – you're commenting on it, and it's not much different than because I think there's been issues we've talked, touched on, or delved into on our podcast that maybe you or I haven't written about. Lots of times, and in fact, you know I'm a, a big podcast uh, enthusiast. Yes, 
And I, the ESPN thing we did the other day was a perfect example of a topic that is right for the podcast. Is, right? is, is perfect for the podcast, not so much for writing. Like there is n- there is no version of that that I could have seen myself writing a story about. But it made for a really interesting conversation. I think, and maybe this is a this is an indictment of me, or maybe both of us. Uh, you know, at this stage of our writing careers, but I feel like there's a complexity that comes with some of these stories. Whether it's that, whether it's like you know the Jeffrey Simmons, you know, uh, domestic violence issue. I remember we talked about it. I feel like there's a lot of stuff you can say, certainly with a two-person podcast, where there can be back and forth. And you can kind of, you know, get into nuance. Like the Baylor story, it's, it's, it's complicated. A lot of these stories become complicated. And I think sometimes it's, it, this is a better forum and a better format for it than just doing a 2,000-word story. Not to say that I would dismiss any stories written about those things, but I just feel like a lot of times you and I can have a back and forth and kind of be very honest about it in a way that's probably harder to be that honest because you can hear us talking about it. I don't know if you get these, but occasionally I get emails from people who say, hey, I love your work, but I prefer to read your work. I don't really like to listen to podcasts. Would it be possible for you to do a transcript of the podcast? And the answer is no. There's no realistic way to do that. But I also feel bad. Like, look, I can't force you to listen to podcasts, but I feel like you're missing out. And in this media environment, I feel like you're missing out. If you, if you, if what you said is true and you like like our perspective on college football – I feel like you're missing out if you're not listening to the podcast. How you know? I will echo that person's point though. On this, there's a lot of times where I will be sitting on the couch and I may be trying to do two different things, and I may not want to. Like this example comes back. It was Colin Coward had made some comments after the ESPN layoffs, and I think he did it. On, like I don't know. There was a uh, Ohio radio website that had transcribed what he had said. And I found it much easier for me to just look at the transcript of his comments. Sure, than it was and, that. and that happens a lot. But they, to be clear, they were transcribing a small portion of his comments. Yes, yes. Like, like, like here's the here's the news of it, yeah. right? And and people have done that to us. I mean, people. I shouldn't say that like it was a bad thing. People have have taken note of something we've said and and written up a story and included the excerpt, and that's fine. Um, but you're missing a lot of con. Like, how would you? S- sum up that 25 minute ESPN conversation in a few paragraphs, right? You would, you would want to have the whole context. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Ryan in Houston, Bruce and Stu. I just got an idea to possibly improve college football that I don't think has ever come up before. I will be very impressed if that is the case here. Let's see. It seems the bowl system is going to gradually lose its luster as players sit out and the playoff potentially grows. It has been a big story since the draft, right? McCaffrey and Fournette Mm -hmm. didn't get dinged at all. And I personally believe, like, we'll see probably double-digit guys do it this year. I don't know if I would say that many, but I, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah. I mean, because I think it now, what they did was they normalized it. It was seen as a really big risk and really unusual, but now that they've done it, it won't seem all that unusual if eight guys decide to do that this year. What if instead of the bowl games finishing the season, they were instead played at the beginning of the next season? Ryan, I hate to burst your bubble, but I have seen this idea before, but we'll answer it anyway. Seeding would still be done the same way, and this would greatly improve the excitement for the first week of the next year and also help some of the better Group of Five schools schedule more Power Five opponents, something Power Five schools appear to be trying to avoid now. What do you think? You want the Bulls at the beginning of the year? No. Okay, I agree, but what if... What if the... um, For people who say that the Bowl games are meaningless, which I disagree with, but they have certainly lost a little luster... What if they had some sort of impact, like the results of the bowls, set up like a... Is this like the baseball all-star game mattering? That's kind of what it's starting to feel like. I was thinking more of, this is going to date me a little bit. Do you remember the great eight in basketball? They would basically take the elite eight from the previous year and have them play in Chicago to start the next season. I don't know if it was right at the start of the season. Um, Something like that. Like if you win the... Pinstripe Bowl, you're going to play the winner of the Independence Bowl to start next season. I think that's that's too much gymnastics for for a little payoff. I mean, I, I just don't see what the... What if I moved it up a little bit? All right, let's use last year's bowl results. LSU beats Louisville in the Citrus Bowl, mm-hmm. and as a result, LSU is going to play 
Florida State to start next season because Florida State won the Orange Bowl. That, I mean, you're not affecting schedules. I mean, Florida State's already got a big game that they're playing. Well, yeah, they would probably Schedule, team. It, it, it screw up schedules. My thinking is if you want to put some kind of value on the postseason bowls, there already is probably a, you know, an apt, you know, apt uh, uh, benefit. If you're one of those teams, it probably gave you a little bit of a boost in recruiting. And I just read a story this morning from the Daily Northwestern where they interviewed like eight. They got a pretty good start to their class this year, and they interviewed like eight of the kids, and out of the eight, six of them picked it in part because they watched the pinstripe bowl and were impressed with the offense. There you go. Yeah. So that's my point. So I think that's that's sufficient. What about my idea, and, and I'm not alone on this, but I, I am a supporter of it, that outside of the New Year's, New Year's Six Bowls, you should be allowed to play the guys you redshirted in the bowl game to give a little little glimpse of next season. I like that idea. Yeah. I've seen that starting to percolate more. Was that original yours or somebody sent an email in or whatever? Great question. I don't... I, I remember tweeting it and getting a lot of responses My, money, my money's on Jason Gorlewski suggested it to you. And you just <laughs> forgot. Okay. Is this the question we like? Speaking of Jason Gorlewski, he just... He always brings it. Uh, okay. Here we go. Is this a Jason one? Mm-hmm. Jason's all right, Jason from Columbia, South Carolina. Great podcast as always. Of course you think it's a great podcast, Jason. You're always on it. Um, one of my favorite movies, football movies, is Varsity Blues. It always struck me as weird that a five-star quarterback from the state of Texas had committed to Florida State, Paul Walker's character, Lance Harbor. I know Drew Brees went to Purdue, Matthew Stafford went to Georgia, but I just can't picture Matt, Mac Brown letting Lance Harbor get out of the state. In fairness, Mac Brown let a lot of quarterbacks get out of state there toward the end. Yeah, and even let him let him get out of Austin at the very least. Yeah. Um, what have what have been some of the biggest recruits who shocked everyone or made an unpopular decision to leave their home state to play for a program in a different state? Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking Peyton Manning leaving New Orleans. And not going to Ole Miss, Joe McKnight, not going to LSU, Terrell Pryor, not going to Penn State. I'm sure you guys have several far better examples. Also, does Bruce have a height and weight measurement for Lance Harbor, the quarterback from West Canton, Texas? I don't have quite as encyclopedic a memory of Varsity Blues as he does. I don't either. I mean, he wasn't even the main character. The main character was James Vanderbeek's character. Um, yes, I'm, I'm thinking of the latter portion of his question, not that part. You're not the height and weight part? Yeah, I don't. Honestly, I don't have any recollection. Okay, so the guys he mentioned there, I, I'm not old enough to remember Peyton Manning's recruitment, but the other ones, McKnight and Pryor, yes, they spurned their home state school, but I don't. in, in neither case was it considered surprising. Terrell Pryor never seriously considered Penn State. It was always going to be Ohio State or Michigan. And Joe McKnight, and maybe I'm just biased by reading your book, which went into great detail about it in Meat Market, Seem pretty determined to leave Ellis, to leave Louisiana. Yeah, um, and there's I think there's a lot of kids. It depends on the state where you get. You know, this came up last night. DJ Williams left the state of California to go to Miami across the country. Uh, we're, and a, a group of us were talking. Somebody brought up DJ Williams last night. Whenever I think recruiting shockers, I always think of Lorenzo Booker on national television. Uh, the Tom Lemming. Part yeah, there. Tom Lemming swore he was going to Notre Dame. And he gets on, I think, SportsCenter on signing day and announces he's going to Florida State. That, that to me, is one of the all-time shockers. Off the top of my head, though, where was Lorenzo Booker from? He's from, he went to St. Bonaventure High School in Southern California. So it wasn't like he was going to no, be at a California yeah. school. Um, Why don't we do this? It's, it's hard for us to recall. What about in the last couple of years? In the last couple of years, like guys who are still playing now or just recruits? Yeah. Or, yeah, guys who are still playing. Uh, okay. Uh, here's one. Robert Kimdichie, mm -hmm. a Georgia guy. Where did he end up? Ole Miss. Deshaun Watson was a big deal leaving Georgia and going to Clemson, but it happened so early in the recruiting process. Yeah, uh, I think there are certain states that kind of, that kind of own it. There was an Ohio offensive lineman. In just the last few years, who shocked everybody by going to Michigan? Everybody swore he would go to Ohio State. Um, you know what I'm talking about? It's not the guy who just finished up his career and wants to be a pro wrestler. I'm blanking on his name. Kyle Kalis. Yeah, that's him. That was a big shocker at the time. Uh, look, Cam Robinson didn't go to LSU. He went to Alabama. That would be a, a big one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think less about shocking and leaving the state as much as like just everybody assumed they were going to one school and they signed with the other. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it happens a little bit, but um, you know, Byron Cowart was a big one. He went to Auburn. He's a Florida guy. Obviously, it's not a big one for your like blase reaction to that <laughs> one. Um, you know what it is. You know why we're struggling with this. Everybody knows everything in recruiting now. Like it's very possible that when Peyton Manning announced his decision in 1994, that nobody saw it coming. But this, these, these guys, it's chronicled every single day. The two four seven crystal ball gives you percentage chances of which school they're going to go to. It would be really hard now to just pull a complete shocker. Um, yeah, I, I think it's yeah. I think I think the the die is kind of cast at that point. Fair enough. Okay, Michael. Oh, you know what? I got one. Though, okay. That. Okay. Uh, one of Chip Kelly's big big polls was getting DeAnthony Thomas away from USC. That's a great one. Everybody thought he was going to USC. Yeah, and that was a kind of a signing day curveball. There you go, Jason. We gave you D'Anthony Thomas. Michael Boucher, B-U-E-S-C-H-E-R. Stu and Bruce, Notre Dame and Oregon, both had four and eight seasons last year, followed by extensive coaching changes. How far back can each of them get this year? Stu, you were up in Eugene. I think Eugene, I think Oregon's going to get back to about six and six. They're going to be really good on offense and really terrible on defense. Yeah, I think that will be a little better on defense. I would agree with you, and I would say that Notre Dame has a chance to win eight games. Notre Dame is an interesting, interesting team because uh, – so I did that early top 25, and I had them in the just missed. If you look back at last season, yeah, they were 4-8, and eight, but so many of them were games they lost in the last minute that you could easily see them being one of those teams that is much better in their record the next season – because luck just goes the other way. Right. So that's the positive. On the negative, I don't remember too many teams going through this extensive of a staff change. I mean, basically change the, you know, it's an entirely new coaching staff almost, especially the coordinators and his whole strength coach too. and his and strength coach and his whole approach to it, his whole management style. That that gives me pause. That makes me think, well, this isn't going to work. So I haven't decided what I'm going to pick Notre Dame to do. Maybe they eight and four. Yeah, that seems fair. Uh, I definitely think they. Of these three teams, I'm going to give you. I'm going to add one other one in there, and that'd be UCLA. Which of those three teams has the best chance to finish in the top fifteen? Top fifteen, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, the Irish. I just think they. Yeah, the Irish. I bet you're going to say UCLA. Uh, UCLA to me and, and uh, Notre Dame were running around the same spot. Obviously, I'm, you know, both had big staff changes. UCLA's yeah, I think very similar situations where they're definitely they have more talent on their roster than their records indicated last year. UCLA has both at least big a staff guy to to lead them on offense, whereas Notre Dame, you know, we think we think uh, Brandon Wimbush is going to be really good, but he's new, so. All right. Well, another great batch of emails. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And of course, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. We'll see you next time.